Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Leslie M. She is the author of Swagger, which I'm holding up here. It's also uh, behind you on the bookshelf for those uh, looking, watching this. Uh, Swagger, unleash everything you are and become everything you want. This is a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. Leslie, welcome to the show. Hey, let's do it. I'm excited. We're saying yeah. I have a lot of energy for someone in the morning, but like this is me all the time. Yeah, you, you, like so it's nine o'clock for you now. You said you've been up since 4.45. Yep, that's how <laughs> yeah. I roll. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And um, we were also talking before we came on that, that you've got – Obviously, an uh, American accent, but you're actually 17 years in Britain, so you've got. Uh, That's right. Yeah, uh, I'm British well, in my soul. British in your soul. British in my soul. It is my happy place. It is where my heart lives. Even though I'm I'm in Canada now. Oh, you're in Canada. I you're, am in Canada. Yeah, not even American. Right. So you can love you know, me more. <laughs> you know, okay. it's so much easier. It's just, I mean, listen, I love all my USA peeps, but when people, you tell people you're Canadian, they go, Oh, okay. All right. We can relax, you know? Right. So you're a Canadian with swagger. It's one thing to be a, an American <laughs> with swagger. It's kind of, but to be a Canadian with swagger, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Um, so yeah, so come and so let's give us a little bit of your background and you know how you came to be writing a book called Swagger. I uh, I've had a very weird and varied background, as you can imagine, living in the UK for many years. I I moved to the UK because I was a singer and I wanted to pursue my dreams of singing in the place where the music that I love came from, which was the UK, of course, best music in the world. Um, but that what in had, particular? Sorry. Yeah, well, the why? Oh, because I was growing up, I was I was a sort of new wave punk okay. in Canada. I, you know, I had the the like the mohawk with the purple hair. People would cross the street because in Canada, it's back in the day. People did not look like me. I was such an anomaly. I used to save all my pocket money and buy imported copies of The Enemy and The Melody Maker and stuff. I like I was obsessed with all things British. And this is in the late seventies. Okay, so um, what were the punk bands that you were into? Oh God, I love the Sex Pistols. I love the Slits. I love the Buzzcocks. I loved X-ray Specs. I, you know, I was just—it uh, was all. I was obsessed with with music, and that's, you know, I think as someone who never really fit in, just like mm. everybody else who identified with that movement, I was like, yes, my people, you know, the rebels with a cause, and and people who are just doing themselves you know they are 100 percent authentic they are not taking crap from anyone and i just loved the entire movement and it inspired me to move to the uk ultimately so i pursued my dreams of singing there for many years but but um the path was very circuitous i ended up working in the film industry for many years my music partner worked in the film industry so i ended up working as a script analyst a script editor a script doctor and then by sort of happy accident i ended up working on tv so i was a tv host in the uk for uh, for a few years as well, so people might recognize me if they're old. Uh, I uh, I hosted a show called The Fashion Police, and uh, also a show called uh, The Warehouse. Um, yeah, a bunch of stuff. So um, when I moved back to to Canada, I had to kind of reinvent myself because I didn't want to work in television or or music anymore, and um, I ended up working in advertising which really taught me so much about creativity and leadership. And I realized that I couldn't help the people that I wanted to help my team, my, my people in the ways that I wanted to because of the pressures of the industry and the work itself and being, you know, pulled through that, that client, you know, that big client trap and all the politics and so on. And so I came home and said to my husband one day, you know, I feel like I'm using my superpowers for evil instead of good. And I want to do something that's going to help my people be better in their work the next day. I don't want them to be this stressed, this tapped out, this riddled with self-doubt. And so um, I said, I think I'm going to quit my job and start a training company. And he said, what? What? Are you crazy? I mean, first of all, Leslie, you hate training. And second of all, you're untrainable. I was like, right? Perfect. Who better to start a training company than someone like me? Because if I can create experiences for people with the same mindset as me, I'm probably going to be onto something. So that was about 14 years ago. And uh, I launched my company called Combustion. And this 
little, you know, can-do company became kind of a global powerhouse and trained all over the world, worked with Fortune 100 companies like Google and Disney and PepsiCo and Lenovo and so on, so on, and so on. And I had a whole series of revelations while I was training people. And it was that it didn't matter the skills that I was training, whether it was, you know, creativity, communication, leadership, uh, presentation skills, that at the core, most people just did not believe that they were good enough to succeed. You know, they didn't believe that they could reveal who they really were and find the success that they were looking for. So while you're trying to, to bring them this new skill set, you're kind of doing it on a shaky foundation. Because if they don't believe in themselves, they're not going to be able to effectively adopt these skills and then be the badasses they were born to be, you know? And once yeah. I recognized that about sort of the human condition, I started to work on that. That became kind of the underpinning of everything I did. I was like subversively kind of bringing that in. And when I would draw people out, sort of crack them like nuts and let their, their peers and their colleagues get a glimpse of who they really were, and have a response to that. The response was always amazing. Like, oh my God, you're, 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 I've never seen you like that. Or, it, you know, you're showing me such a different side of you, or that was so much more powerful or whatever that response was. People were like, really? I was like, yes, that is your swagger, my friend. That yeah. is what makes you magical and special. You've got to hold on to that. And that's when everything changed for me. Right. I realized that 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 was my purpose and that was my focus. And so yeah. that led me to focus on that and then ultimately write the book. Right. Yeah. So you're like you, you went from this orientation about like the skills towards like, no, what's underneath you, you know, being who you really can be. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Because and that's, I love cool. that's where your superpower is. Right. It's not on all of this external stuff. It's all of that deep-rooted, intrinsic, real stuff. That's your your true power core. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, uh, one of my I, I've done therapy, which would maybe talk about, but I, you know, one of my first therapists talked about you know, uh, whipped cream on a cow pat, right? Like if you're trying, <laughs> trying to put too much fancy stuff on top of a, a of a broken foundation, you know, it, it's it's not going to work. That's right. Um, and I love the image in the book, you, 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 cause I counterpose these two images, right? There's, so there's the real self as, as the core with a very thin veil on the outside. There's a very thin circle around it. And that's like the expanded real self. And that's like the one self you show to the world versus like the real self, which itself is just this sort of tiny disc layered, layered over with, um, yeah, lots of rings around it. And, and the world gets to see very little of that real self. I, I, yeah. I, that, that, those images struck me. Well, I want to make sure that we, that I uh, give you the definition of swagger, because when you, when people hear the word, they automatically assume we're talking about something show offy, arrogant peacock, you know, false front, all of that stuff. That is not the kind of swagger that I'm talking about. I've literally redefined it. To, to mean the ability to manifest who you really are and hold on to it in the face of all of that psychological crap that's going to come for it, regardless of the situation or environment. So it means you have one face, one truth, one heart, and you show up in that form, no matter what's going on around you, no matter the challenges you're facing, the pressures, you are able to tap into and hold on to all of that stuff that is real about you and transcend all of the things that block it so that you can expand your real self and let the world see who you really are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you, cause, cause you go through and you describe them as, you know, a series of blockers, right. To, to the real self in the book. Um, in, fa in fact, you've got, uh, you know, five here. Um, you know, wh where should we start with those? What, what do you find tend to be the most pertinent for people when you're working with them of, of those blockers? Well, they're, they're all really interconnected and, and one blocker tends to drive and reinforce another blocker. So, um, the, the outer layer is persona. It's that story we tell ourselves about how we have to walk, talk, show up, act in our, in our work world in particular, but not limited to our work world. The next layer in is ambition. The fact that ambition will change us because we believe that we have to do and say and be certain things in order to achieve our goals, which reinforces persona, of course. Um, then there's insecurity. 
the, the vo- negative voices in your head telling you you're not good enough. And all of those what ifs, what if I don't walk, talk, behave, act a certain way, am I ever going to be able to succeed? Right? So it's, it's directly linked to ambition and persona. The next layer in is fear. It's the answer to the what if. It's the, if I don't walk, talk, act and behave a certain way, bad things are going to happen. You know, that's what we truly believe. And that's why we're so risk adverse when it comes to showing the world who we really are. So that reinforces insecurity, which reinforces ambition, which reinforces persona. And the last, the last blocker is pain because pain is proof. Pain is, oh, 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 I tried that one time. It did not go well. Hurt like a you know what. And I am never going there again. And, and pain has an incredibly long memory and it, and it forgets context. So even though the context of our lives have changed dramatically, we still hold on to and live in, to, live in that pain, right? So pain reinforces fear. It says, don't go there again, which reinforces insecurity, ambition, and persona. And those tend to be the kind of the human conditional blockers that everyone suffers from in one degree or another. And it's down to the individual. It's the story that, that you've been telling yourself over, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually it's interesting reading, reading that section because I was like, come on, when's she going to start talking about pain? And I hadn't, hadn't read the index. And then I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> finally she's got there. Right. Cause, and, and, and on the one hand, like I was, uh, you know, I love the fact, encouraged that you'd written about that because so many self-help books, you know, they just, they just don't talk. They just don't talk about it. You don't hit, you don't, you know, they, they talk a lot about, you know, dealing with your inner script and your insecurities, a lot of the stuff you, and, and fear and facing your fear and so on, but they never get to that bottom rung of, well, what's underneath all of that? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's pain. Um, but one thing, and I told you before we came on that they yes. had me screaming at the book, which, oh. I, which, I, which, which I disagree with, right? But yes. from my own experience. Okay. And that is a quote from your therapist, which is, we can never go back in time and remove or fix our pain, but we can learn to see and respond to it differently when it's triggered. Mm-hmm. And, okay, and, let's go. Yeah. And I, and I believe that that's, you know, that's a commonly held view by people mm-hmm. and by therapists, right? That mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's there. It's something that we live with. And it's something that, you know, we, we can learn to manage and obviously acknowledge and, and be with. And that's where I kind of start. And I don't want to make this about my therapy journey, but I couldn't help like not, you know, you, this is about swagger and being honest, right? I couldn't like read this yeah, yeah. book, have that thought and then not bring it up. Um, and that's where I started with my therapy journey. But, uh, you know, what I have learned to do over, you know, a decade of work basically is to lift that pain up to re-experience it in the present, re-manifest it in the present and heal it, right? To fully feel it, to express all of it, to say and do and feel the things I couldn't feel back then. And I have found that it's absolutely possible to remove it from my system. And, and so that's why I had that visceral reaction to your therapist statement. There. Yeah, I think the point that I'm trying to make with that, because I, I, do, I do agree with you in principle, you know, the fact the thing that you cannot do is change the fact that it happened to you. You know, you can't go back in time and erase it. So what happens is when you, when you look at that pain years later, you can bring all of this new context to it. You can't say, I did not experience that moment of pain that was scarring for me. Right. But now with my adult context or my experienced context, I can say, okay, is it as relevant today? Do I need to hold on to it today? Does it still, you know, am I still going to allow it to impact me today to resonate with me? But you can't go back and and make it not have happened, you know? Mm. And that's the thing that I think that that people, one of the reasons people are afraid to go and revisit their pain because they have to go there. You know, in therapy, we call it, you know, doing the work. You've got to do the work. You've got to get down in the weeds and get messy and visceral and be prepared to sit in it and relive it and so on and so forth. But the beauty of revisiting it is like anything, you know, if you've, if there's been the monster in the closet and you've been so terrified of what's in that closet, you just say, I'm just going to keep the door shut. That's what I'm going to, that's how I'm going to deal with it. The day that you develop the courage to go into the closet and there are monsters there, you know, but you realize that you've changed so much that you see the monsters differently, but the monsters are still there, right? It's just that you can recontextualize them and and have a new perspective on them or react to them differently. So I think that's the point. I think we're on the same page 
and I, I, you know, I know that that from my own therapy journey, because therapy is the bomb, everybody should go to therapy as much as they possibly can. It's the best thing ever. Is that, you know, those moments also that I considered to be so painful then, I, I understand now because I understand the context of them, that they have way less power than they used to, but the scar is still there. That's yeah. what, I, what I've identified is the scar is still there, but it's just a scar now. You know, it can't hurt me. So you can heal over it, but the scar is, is still going to be there. And that's not a bad thing because we, we need history. We need experience. We need context. We need relevance for who we are. And I think that, you know, most people will tell you, if not for my past, I would not be who I am today. Um, hopefully in a healthy way, hopefully in a, you know, in an evolved and, and, um, and healed kind of way. But I, I would have been a different person without, without those, those experiences, those scars. Yeah, no, no. So, so I think we're selling all, yes. Okay. So that's, we're good that's, now. Um, we're good. We're, well, we're, we're almost, good. almost the only, good. The only, the only difference I would say is that it is, in my experience, if you're prepared to make the sacrifice, and this is a cost, to some extent, a cost benefit analysis that yeah. everyone has to make is that you can actually go beyond the point of there even being a scar. I mean, there are mm-hmm. aspects of my childhood now where it's, it's literally a zero charge completely wow. disarred from the system and yes of course it still happened but i have literally you know zero emotional relationship with that event now that's wow. taken a lot a, a lot time. a lot yeah. of work Listen, and oh. it's a massive investment but i do think it's possible to fully recover from these events like that yeah. in my experience i think all power to you i think that we as humans we're all kind of structured differently and um and i think that that everyone's journey is a hundred percent unique the way that everybody copes is 100% unique. There isn't a best way of doing things. What I, what I want for people is to not be limited by their, by their story. You know, I say you are not your history or the stories you tell yourself. So if we all have the power to, to update that narrative and to, to take it into a place that works for us, and that allows us to feel safe and happy and open and powerful, you know, as opposed yeah. to, you know, hidden and, and afraid and all of that. That's what I wish for everybody. Yeah. It reminds me of John Bradshaw's quote, never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> right. Like you can't, it is possible to, to, to live by a different narrative, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, wonderful. I think that's it's so important that that's in there and that you've you've acknowledged it in the book. Uh, so I got yeah. points for talking about pain, but then I lost a few points for uh, for the. No, the, no, no. It's like, it's, okay. like it's just, I think it's good. I mean, what this is what's sort of valuable about the book, and this is funny. It's interesting how these synchronicities happen. But in the, literally the last two podcast podcast guests have both talked about the importance of honesty. Now you're talking about the importance of honesty in the context of, of swagger and sort of your individual, I suppose, power in the world. He was talking about it in terms of trust, right, and build. And, and, mm. and of course, things overlap. But he was talking about it in terms of building trusting relationships. It's like important to be honest. And, and, and like honesty is a muscle, right? It's that you can, oh, yeah. that was his point that he was making. You could actually get better at being honest over time, which is something that hadn't really occurred to me. I thought you were uh, basically an honest person. Oh, yeah. not, Listen, right? I have a whole chapter on speaking your truth. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's in the book, like, which I love. We, yeah. We talk about, I talk about practicing it. The book is filled with, yeah. with exercises, right? And one of the things is if you are not accustomed to speaking your truth, if you've been, kind of muzzled or, or muffled or, or sublimated for a long time, you're going to have to build that skill anew. And that's going to take practice. Even hearing the sound of your own truth in your mouth is going to feel so uncomfortable because you're going to be so used to glossing it up and making it pretty and making it shiny and all of that kind of stuff. It's going to be like vomit, you know, yeah. and, and you've got to learn how to do it. And when I talk, I talk about truth. The, the thing that's so important that people forget is that, you know, truth is all we have in this, in this world. It's, it's really all we are, are our words and our deeds. That's, that's our, our, our truth. But, but authenticity gets a bad rap because a lot of people think, well, it's a license to just run around with your hair on fire screaming, I must make my truth. And it's like barfing, you know, your truth all over everybody and everybody has to take it. Okay. First of all, no, they don't. Uh, and they won't. So you've got to think about your truth in the context of whether it's going to land or not. Because if it doesn't land, there's no point in speaking it. You're just, you're just, you know, peeing into the wind kind of thing and hoping people are, are going to get wet. 
And the only person who's going to get wet is you. So you have to, you have to think about it, your truth in the context of it's good for me, but how is it good for the other and for the collective and for the greater good? Because yeah. your truth will always have an aspect of being good for the other and, and for the greater good. It's up to you to find it and figure it out. Because if it's just about you, nobody's got time for that. No one cares. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. just the way we are as, as humans. We care about ourselves. And so if your truth can be a benefit to somebody else, they will hear it. And yeah. I have, in my experience, I've learned that pretty much every truth that is worth speaking to other people, you know, contextually has benefit to them and to the, the collective and the greater good. You got to learn how to do it, though. It's reframing. You got to get smart about it. Yeah. And the way you fuse those two together, intention and telling your truth, right? Because we've probably all had this experience if we share that we think we're doing the right thing. One of us being honest, but of course, yeah. you totally screw up somebody oh, yeah. else in the situation or whatever. That's right. But that taking that breath to be like, okay, what's my intent here? Like, what's my intention? What do I, what do I hope the outcome is going to be? Um, and if I have clarity on that, then I can shift it in the moment. If I realize that my intention is not coming through, I can even start with explaining my intention. Okay. So my intention yeah. with this conversation is to X. And if I, if I'm not achieving that, please let me know. And it also like, you know, you want to be careful that it's not, it's not, you know, um, to cover up the fact that you're about to be an asshole. Cause I'll be, my intention here is to not hurt your feelings, but I think you're an idiot. That's not, that's not going to be, that's not going to work well, but, but having clarity on, on your, the intention for, for not just yourself, but for the other person and for the collective, it, it kind of has this, this little, little, it's like this subversive psychological tool because people go, Oh, okay. I'm now listening to what you're saying with that lens on and I'm measuring it against that. And I'm like, I'm all good. If my intention is clear, I want you to measure it against against that, you know, as opposed to whatever narrative is happening in your own mind that you're going to apply to it. Let's get on the same page. And so stating your intention can really get people on the same page as well. Yeah. And, and then as I reflect on that, you know, I think certainly my experience of working with my pain blocker, you know, in, in, in therapy and sort of learning just to be more authentic. And I screwed up so often, I think, because I, because I did I, that time, like I wasn't really thinking about maybe I should also be bringing in my intention here. I was just like, how could I get better at like, how can I sort of push myself to be more authentic? Mm -hmm. Which, which of course is part of this, but the, you, you've got to, you've got to have create this marriage with the intention for it to be like effective out there. It seems to be. Listen, dude, it's a journey. You know, this whole swagger thing is a journey. It's not a switch that you flip. You don't wake up one morning and go, oh, that's it. Swagger's intact. It's all good. Like anything, it's, it's a learning and a learned process. And you, you will make mistakes along the way. And you do get do-overs in this life. And that's the beauty of, of swagger is that you own that. You know, that, that we're so terrified of, of sort of the ramifications of speaking our truth and so on, that that's one of the things that stops us from doing it. But if we, if we're not happy, with how things go, we're allowed to ask for a do-over. You know, there's <laughs> right. nothing better than saying to someone, you know, I, I didn't feel good about that conversation. I didn't feel good about how I walked away from it. I, I don't get the sense that it, it worked for you. And I want to revisit it because it's important for, for this situation or for us or for whatever it is. So can we have a do-over? And most people go, sure thing, you know? If you don't make it super painful for them, they're willing to do it. And the, the chances are, if you didn't feel good about it with clear intention about the other and the collective, there's probably a good chance that they didn't feel good about it either. And we all like to, to feel good, to have like a sense of closure and a sense of, you know, no one likes to walk around with that, that, that feeling of the rock, you know, on your chest, like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable yeah. and that was not good. So you go revisit it. I mean, if relationships have taught us anything, you come back at it. You go, oh, mm. yeah, no, that I was not my best self in that moment. Can we have a do-over? Right? Yeah. And the person goes, thank you. Because, yeah, me too. That was not cute what just happened there. That was not good. So you can do that, you know, in all of your life. You can do that professionally. That's, there's, there's no harm or foul in that. I've done that for years and years and years. And, hey, I still have a career. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just reminds me of the story of the book. It's a project manager. And she, you know, she's she's... Bring, bringing truth, right, about this project, but it looks bad in front of them. I wonder if you could tell that story and then, like, because I'm thinking of that person then asking for the do, you know, the, having the do-over might have been the next best move. Yeah, I think, so the, the story is that um, 
there was this this uh, woman who was it, she was a project manager. Her job was to look for issues and problems. That's part of what her job is, and, and to flag them before they become serious. And they were working on a on a big project. This is a, a financial services technology company, um, and there was a problem that she recognized in this project that really had the, the potential to derail it. And in the meeting, um, you know, everybody is kind of, you can see that everybody wants to say something, but nobody is saying anything. And her boss is sort of doing that. Everything is great. You know, we're all good to go, all green light and everything. And she was like, well, I, I've got to, I've got to say something. It's my job. And so she, in the meeting, spoke up and said, hey, I recognize that there's this problem here that I really want to address and stuff. And her boss lost his mind and called her out and gave her all of this crap and so on and so forth. And she was devastated. She was like, but this is my job. So what am I supposed to do? Not not speak my truth when it's my job? And so I use that as an example for, okay, well, what do you do after that? Like, what's the next step of, of that? Because clearly your intention fell flat right? Clearly, the intention that you had was to be good for the collective, to let people know that there's a problem here. Guys, there's a bus is coming, speeding towards us. We might want to step out of the way or, you know, or slow the bus. But in that moment, you've got to think about, is now the right time? Is this the right place? Am I potentially challenging this guy's status or his credibility or um, the, the, his persona of perfection? Is there something political going on that I'm not really sure of? Like he seems really adamant about, about saying everything is tickety boo, but the, the, the truth is that it's not. So what, what you've got to do is kind of be able to read the room and go, mm, maybe my truth is better served by, by not speaking it right here, right now. And after the meeting, you circle back with the person and you say, Hey, I wasn't sure if that was the right, you know, venue to bring it up, but I wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one with you about the issues that I'm seeing. And then you can tell me if, if it's appropriate to share it with the team or are there ways can I, to, that I can help you to do this kind of behind the scenes and so on and so forth. It's like almost having the good sense to not call somebody out in the room. And we are, you know, we as humans, we're very driven by status. We're very driven by our sense of power and all of that stuff. And sometimes you really have to think about the to whom, when, where, and the what of your truth in order to be successful with it. And so often what I, what I tell people is that do some scenario planning, you know, like think about if you've got an agenda and there's something that you want to say in a situation, ask yourself, hmm, okay, option A is to go in guns blazing. Option B is to delicately raise the subject a little bit and see how it goes and decide from there. Option C is to find an ally, you know, in advance of the meeting who you know will support you in it. Can sometimes be dicey because sometimes they, you know, they crap out on you in the last minute and stuff. Or the other option is to go and talk to the, the, the power broker, or this, you know, the status person in advance of the meeting and say, hey, this is something I want to bring up. Is that the appropriate venue? Or should you and I have a conversation about that offline? You know? And once you, when, when you start thinking about those scenarios and you know the players, you usually can figure out the best way to handle it much better than just going in. And even if your intention is to help, sometimes it's not going to go well for you, you know? Yeah. 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 I and mean, the other thing that comes to mind is that, uh, so I love that idea of like who, who, what, when you know, how, like, the, as well as the why as the intention, but it yeah. also struck me as that individual, because I, because I relate to that scenario. I've been in similar, you know, a lot of my career, and I'm guessing lots of people can, you know, you know, <laughs> fairly high stakes meetings, you know, you're sitting on something, should I say it, should I not? And, 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 and so one thought is, had she said, like, firstly, like, my intention is not to blow this meeting up. Uh, my intention is to bring some information to this meeting that, you know, that may, that may help us. Like that was the first, and then the second that might be, and you know, I think of this in terms of relation in relationships as well. Like almost like ask, like, are you? What do you think about this? Like, are you ready? If I were to share something right now, you know, yeah, that you, you gotta be careful though, because that what you're saying is that there is a cat that's in the bag. Yeah, and as soon as you tell them that there's a cat in the bag, the whole tone of the room is going to change. 
Because now if the if the boss says no, he's the asshole now. <laughs> right? So you've got to be really careful. Like you, you know what I mean? You can't just, you know, um uh you you're gonna have to like without saying that there's a cat, you can kind of ask a question to say, so um are we all comfortable with the current status? Can we talk about the status of the, the project a little bit and then get a read for how other right. people are seeing it? And if you think that everyone's going, it's great, it's great, it's great. And you're the one, who, the only one who's going, it's not great. You go, oh, damn. Okie dokie. I think I need to straighten some people out, but it's probably not here, not now. Mm. Let's go talk to the person who's got the most skin in the game, who's, you know, who has the most to gain or the most to lose from this and have a conversation to say, I'm a little concerned that the perception is that the, the project is really on track when I have information to the contrary. Can we talk about that? And then you can decide how you'd like to move forward. So now I'm not taking, I think I'm, I have the knowledge, but I'm still giving the other person the power to use the knowledge. I'm not, I'm not using that knowledge, you know, but I'm, but I'm, I'm not holding it back either because that, that would be of detriment to the collective and, and to the greater good. And ultimately to myself, you know, it's like, why didn't you say anything? You're the project manager. You're supposed to say something. Yes, I am, but I don't want to lose my head in the process. So, you know, that kind of thing. So you, and then you, you know, some of the, sometimes those very things can build the kind of trust and the, and the respect of other people because they go, thank you for not just blowing up the meeting. Because even if you say my intention is to not blow up the meeting, you're going to blow up the meeting. Right. (laughs) So you can't take it back. You can't go, oh, I'm so sorry. It was not my intention to blow up the meeting too late. We're all singed and sitting in ash, you know? Right. So, yeah. So it's not a cast iron uh, rule that just sharing your intention is going to is gonna make a yeah. difference, right? Yeah. You want to be clear sure. on it, but you've still you, got to choose whether or not now's the moment. That's right. That's right. I think that's a better, that's better when you're speaking your truth to the person to share your intention. My intention yeah. here is to make sure I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, which is why I didn't bring it up in the meeting. And they go, yeah. oh. Proof. Okay, good. Now I'm open. Now they go, whew, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a different set of, uh, norms, right? If you're in a collective or a, yeah, versus one to one. Um, yeah, no, that's, um, so, so we, so this is, we're really talking about, um, so we've, we've worked on the blockers, but now we're talking about like, how do we, you know, you talk about these drivers for swagger, right? Like these, so the, it's the intention, um, it, it sounds like it's part of this is like sensing the room or feeling your way into like the moment to share your truth. Um, you know, what, what else do you talk about in terms of drivers for your swagger? Like the last driver is self-belief. You, you have got to believe that your truth is worthy of being spoken, that you are good enough, that you deserve to speak your truth, that the world deserves to hear your truth and that you're not going to die as a result. That's what self-belief is. You know, it's, it's that feeling that you can step off a cliff and you're not going to perish in the flames of hell. That yes, it might get uncomfortable or yeah, you might get some bumps and bruises, but only when you step off that cliff, are you able to make progress in your life? Because here's the, the, the problem is that we all, we all think that confidence is the golden ticket. We think that if we have confidence and people see us as, as confident, then we win. We win the game and everyone's going to take us seriously and we're going to increase our status and all the rest of it. The, the problem is with, with confidence, the only way to gain true confidence is as a result of true competence. Only by doing something over and over again and building the skill set and the mindset will you, will you convince your very resistant brain that you got this? You know, you can put me in a bunch of different situations. I'm going to be good to go. You know, I could take on a new role or I could go to a new company or I could be with, with a different group of people and I can hold my own. But every time you want to stretch or grow, you get punted out of confidence by definition. You're going back into the unknown, which resets that whole paradigm and puts you back into a place of competence building. That's usually when you get into the whole fake it till you make it thing. It's like, no. Don't fake it till you make it. Feel it till you find it. It is okay to be building competence and owning where you are in your journey. You don't have to apologize for that. That's called growing. You know, who's kidding who? Like we all, we all have moved and evolved. We are not 
we don't have the same level of confidence, competence today that we did two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. And that is as it should be. So when, when we, we accept that every time we want to grow, we're going to have to take that self-belief risk. We're going to have to go, okay, I'm like that proverbial lobster who has to shed its shell in order to grow. I'm super vulnerable now. I'm going to have to go back to that place of I don't know everything and I'm going to whatever. But don't forget that you're building on a foundation that's, that's, you know, that's, that's super powerful. And when you, when you don't succumb to that fake it till you make it bullshit, what you, what you allow yourself is the opportunity to ask other people for help. Cause you're not walking around going, Oh, I got it. I know it. I'm all, you know, I know everything. You'd be like, Hey, I'm trying to learn this whole new thing. I'm trying to experience this. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to be better and all that kind of stuff. You are someone who I see as being better or, you know, more accomplished or more experienced. Can I learn from you? Will you help me in this journey? And when you do that with people, they love you for it because you've just celebrated their, you know, their experience and, and their excellence. And they will allow you to sit at their feet if you're respectful about it. And if you're super duper smart, you then turn around to everybody else and tell them how you got better and smarter and more adept through the help of this wonderful person. You name right. check them, you give them credit, you know, and you've not just validated the fact that you're, that you're now better and smarter, but you've, you've kind of built that, that level of trust with them and people moving forward who are going to be more willing to help you because of the fact that you're open to celebrating them. It is a much smarter idea overall than fake it till you make it. It just yeah. doesn't, it's just a really bad idea. Yeah. No, it reminds me of research they've done with kids who, who tend to be better at skill acquisition is that they tend when, you know, when they're practicing some skill, they, the kids that don't get it so quickly are the ones that beat themselves up when, you know, oh, God, God, I, did, I missed it. I didn't. But the kids were just like, oh, okay, you know, try again. No, all right. Didn't make it. Try again. Right. It's that willingness to be shit at something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the way you're better at learning something is by teaching somebody else. Right. So when, you know, if, if you talk to leaders who have mentored people, they'll tell you how much they have learned about their own leadership journey through mentoring, through having to, to, to really concretize their thinking and be able to have, you know, those conversations about specifics about, about leadership and people managing and people development that they may not have actually really thought through. It was may have been instinctual or maybe learned or whatever it is. They become better in that journey as well. So they always say, if you want to, if you want to learn something, teach somebody, you know, teach somebody right. else and you will be better at doing that. So it's a good thing for everybody. And there is no shame, no harm, no foul in saying, Hey, I want to get better at this. Can you help me? I don't know when yeah. that became such a freaking shameful thing. It's, it's so heartbreaking. I do it all the time. I'm like, Oh, you're so good. I'm so not good at this. Can you help me? And, and then the people are incredibly generous. I have found like a hundred percent generous. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Um, but I guess it comes back to being truthful and the intention, right? My intention is to learn this thing. The truth is I suck at it right now and I want to get better. Like, yeah. 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 And I think that you're, you're amazing. Yeah. And I have tons of respect yeah. for you. So I'd love for you to be the person to teach me right, you know, to, right. to help me do right. it right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Um, on, the, on the theme of, um, yeah, this self-confidence or the, um, you know, this uh, faith in yourself. I love the story of um, the mighty Contessa from Google. <laughs> Would you like to share that? The mighty Contessa. So um, I, uh, I, I was, I've been doing work with, with Google for years and, and I do a combination of training and, and sort of coaching and so on and so forth. And um, this woman asked me to come and help her do some presentation skills, coaching in, in specific. Sure thing, no problem. And uh, what I discovered very quickly is that, is, is that it wasn't that she was worried about her presentation skills. It was the fact that she was an incredibly tall woman. And I mean tall for a woman. She, she was over six foot, beautiful, this long, lithe, elegant woman. But I mean, proportionally, a woman at about, I mean, towered over me, she was like six foot one, six foot two. Proportionally, that takes up a lot of space. And her concern was that she was taking up too much space. And as a woman, 
it was making her feel uncomfortable because she felt that others were uncomfortable with the amount of space that she was taking up. So she wanted to figure out how to make herself smaller and appear not quite as, you know, as intimidating in her mind. And of course, when I heard that, my little heart just, just broke because I don't want anyone to ever feel like they have to make themselves smaller or make themselves less than or whatever. I mean, what her differentiator was, was that she was like this beautiful force and she could cross a room in like five steps, you know, and she had this like wingspan. She was fantastic. And the, the, the secret really was in reframing this idea of being too big, too much, too, you know, too overbearing or, or, or whatever. And it was much more about stepping into it and celebrating it. So I gave her her superpower name was the Mighty Contessa because she just had such a beautiful command and, and elegance. And so what I taught her how to do was to use that to draw people in, you know, because what what happened, the, the thing that changed it for her was I did a little impromptu survey of a whole bunch of people in her department. And I asked people to describe her in a few words. How do you see her? What's your perception of her? And the things that they said were, she's so smart. She's such a great leader. She's super powerful. She's really kind. She's really like all of these words, none of which I needed to do with tall, overbearing, takes up too much space, you know, all uh, nothing. I said, this is the story you're telling yourself. This is not how other people perceive you. In fact, you want to step into all of that stuff and leave this behind and use that differentiator, use the thing that makes you so beautiful and so, so powerful. And so that's what we worked on. And the, the transformation in her was so beautiful because she'd been, work, she'd been trying so hard to do this and I got her to do this, you know, like to expand her space and to use all of that. And it was like watching like a swan, you know, it was so, it was so liberating and so beautiful. Yeah. It's a take that I, you know, that facet of herself that she thought was her weirdness, let's say, or the things she needs to sort of manage or work with. And yeah, no, no, that's, that's, what's going to make you beautiful. I mean, well, that, you know, I love that story. That's the, the thing is that all of that stuff that we think are the messy, imperfect, you know, idiosyncratic things about ourselves are our differentiators. And ironically, most of us want to be noticed in this world. You know, we want to stand out, but we're terrified to. So we, we dampen everything down and we try and, you know, like, you know, sandpaper off all the rough edges so that we don't stand out. But then we wonder why we're not getting noticed. Why, why nobody is saying, Oh, I see you and I see what you have to offer and so on because we're hiding it all. And, and it's much easier to fit in than it is to stand out for however hard you think fitting in is. It is still much easier than standing out and owning it because you got to have courage. You don't have courage. You don't have to have courage to assimilate, right? Yeah. You just watch the behavior of other people and go, I'm just going to do what everybody else does. And I'm going to hide my light under a bushel, as they say. Yeah, yeah, but standing yeah. out takes courage. Standing out says, you know what? I may not be for everyone. And that is okay. Because I would rather be loved and accepted for who I am then have everybody like me because I, I turned myself into this vanilla, you know, pasteurized version of myself that, of course, is palatable. You know, it's artificial vanilla. Most people don't really have a problem with it. But do you seek it out? Do you go, you know what? I really want some of that artificial vanilla ice cream. That's really what I'm craving right now, right? No, you go, I want Rocky Road, Mocha Choco S'mores, you know, ice cream. But that's what we have to learn how to be for, for ourselves is to, to, you know, to tap into that stuff that, not everybody is going to dig and learn to be okay with that because swagger is more about self-acceptance than it is about self-assuredness. Right, right. Yeah, because that's the foundation, right? Yeah, that it's almost like that. The emerging outcome is the, is the self-assuredness. Yeah. If, if, so don't if go for self-assuredness. Self yeah, that's yeah. going to come. Start yeah. with self-acceptance, self-validation, self-love, self-appreciation. That's yeah. the stuff that matters because all the rest of it is bullshit perception. It is the perception of others. It is, does not make it true. It does not make it valid. And I sure as hell don't have to wear it. You know, that's I, I, my joke is it's the equivalent of 
going into the air- airport, going up to some ra- random baggage carousel, pulling up somebody else's baggage off the, the carousel, dragging it home, opening it up and putting somebody else's dirty underwear on your head and walking around going, hey, hey, you know, yeah. I don't need somebody else's dirty underwear. I'm like, hey, you do you, boo. You, mm. you, you can own whatever you perceive. It is not for me to change that or, or own that. I don't have to carry it around and make it my own. Yeah. No, that's something we need to teach kids in school. Like starting from that, from that age is to say, just because your teacher has an opinion of you, it it, is not an indicator of who you are. Right. Right? And that's, you know, but I love that this idea of the the kind of layers, you know, that's the work to do is to keep on picking, you know, the the persona, the insecurities and stuff to bleed the the pain, the pain that's so important. But but it's such a contrast. When I think about my early days in in corporate life, I was with Arthur Anderson, which then became Deloitte, right? Very corporate environment. And and the, the emphasis seemed to be on like, here are the expectations of you at these different roles, right? And and there was there was the kind of phrase of, you know, part of your progression is like knocking off your the rough edges, like to become this kind of smooth assured like senior executive like everything in this none of nothing in this book with you know well maybe a little bit about persona like this is the the sort of gravitas you may want to project right so there may be a little bit about that but but this seems to me to be very counter the way that a lot of corporations like to develop their people i just wondered if you've experienced that you know having worked with so many corporations. well I, ironically the leaders who are the most respected are the ones who are the most authentic. Yeah. That, I mean, it's this, this, this whole sort of counterintuitive idea is that if you are a leader who can hold on to your authenticity up the ladder and still understand what professionalism is, because professionalism and, and, you know, authenticity are, are different things. Professionalism is doing your work, being in your place of excellence, being accountable for the work that you do being in service of other people, being respectful of the work and the people and the, the, you know, the vision of the organization. It's showing up on time. It's, you know, that's what professionalism is. It's not about assimilating to the point of, of bland. So you can be who you are and create those meaningful connections with other people. And the beauty is once you do that, you will find that people will lift you. You don't have to work so hard to climb the ladder anymore because in order to be a leader, you have to have followers. You cannot truly be a leader without followers and followers cannot be forced. They have to be cultivated and it is their choice. It's their choice at the end of the day. And those leaders who are transparent, who are open, who are willing to have difficult, you know, discussions in a, in a human way, who walk their talk, who, you know, the, the people around them say, with that person, what you see is what you get. Those are the people who, who will succeed the most in the happiest way. Because I've encountered far too many leaders who have the title of the C is in front of their name, and they are riddled with insecurity. They're in to- absolute yeah. pain. They're scared, shitless and witless. And they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're just waiting for the world to find them out. And that is not a way to live. So yeah, if you want, if, if ambition is that important to you that you're willing to sacrifice your authenticity for it, there's probably not that much that I can tell you right now, but come talk to me in five years when you've lived it and, and, and you're, you're questioning everything and saying, why am I doing this? And what's the point of this? And what's happened to me? What's become of me? I don't recognize myself anymore. Then you're going to be ready for the swagger conversation. Right. And that, and we didn't really touch on it, but that was another sort of moment in the book was that there's counterintuitive because you, you kind of associate swagger with ambition. You're like, well, you want to have this really big ambition. And then you've, you, you kind of build your swagger to, to match this ambition. You don't want to be as, as swaggersome as this ambition demands. And, uh, and you're saying, no, 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 the, the way to, to swagger in the way that you define it is to, to go of that ambition. Well, it's not about letting go of it. It's, it's making sure that it doesn't turn you into someone that you are not, that you don't sacrifice your authenticity for the title. Because what you're, what you're aspiring to is validation. That's why the title means so much to you, is you're waiting for the world to say, good girl, good boy, 
you did it. You're good enough. All of that, you know, and, and that's crack for most people. We are starving for, for validation. We don't know how to Look at how the to rise of social inter- media. Yeah. We don't know how to internally validate. We, we give all our power away to everybody else. And we, we only feel like we're good enough when other people tell us that we're good enough. So that, that can really mess with us in, in pursuit of ambition. I am all for going after what you want in this world. I'm all for aspiration. I'm all for success, all of it, but not at the cost of your authenticity. And there is a place for everyone in this world. If you're working somewhere that has no interest in who you really are, you need to pack it up and go somewhere that will accept and respect that. It is not worth it. It's not worth it. You know, I, I've met a lot of people who have been incredibly happy in, you know, with the organization that they've risen through. They've been there 15, 20 years. I've also met people within the same organization who are in hell and they're terrified of leaving because they have 10 years or 12 years under their belt and they're afraid to start over. And I go, yeah, but you're dying. You're dying here. This is not living. So, so I, I don't know, like, this is not a rehearsal, you know, this life that you get. You get one kick at the can, that's it, one go around the, the merry-go-round. And all of this time that you're investing in being miserable because you, you are holding yourself back. It's not the company's fault. You are holding yourself back. You will never get that time back. So you got to take your fine ass and go somewhere that's going to appreciate all of that stuff because there are a lot of organizations out there that have different personalities, that have different values. There are different bosses. There are, you know, all of these, these things. You have to find something that aligns with who you are, not change who you are to align with, with, you know, with, with a company or, or with corporate values that you don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, I know we're at time. I know you've got another meeting now. Um, so. Yeah, let, let's just wrap it up with pointing people where to go to, you know, if they like what they've heard and, and want to, you know, hear more, you know, where would you point them? Uh, you can see more about what I do at lesliem.com. That's L-E-S-L-I-E-E-H-M.com. You can check out more about the book. It's swaggerthebook.com. You can get the book on all the, the booksellers, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all that, all that good stuff. Um, follow me on social because I take what I do seriously, but I really don't take myself that seriously. Uh, for example, today I posted a reel about coloring my roots. <laughs> that's the only thing about yourself that you should cover. So there check you me go. out You're walking on, uh, on uh, Instagram at Leslie M Speaks, LinkedIn at Leslie M. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Once again, we'll put those links into the, into the notes. Yeah. Wonderful conversation. Love your Thank swagger. You. Thank you for the juicy wake me up. Good morning chat. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Leslie. It's been great. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.